I'm sitting in Fort Greene Park in New York City, and I'm thinking about the Friends show and why it's become important to me, but I'm also thinking about my childhood and my upbringing. I've always been kind of considered a creative person, and there's this sort of mythology around being an only child and not having any friends and developing the ability to entertain yourself. What's interesting is I have that ability. Um, and so I <laughs> had developed a lot of imaginary friends in my childhood and different personas. You know, I used to debate myself, read philosophy books and then take different positions. I would take a position and then pick the opposite position and argue, almost like I was playing chess with myself. And then I would try to find an orthogonal position between the two, but like off, off to the left or right from just a strict binary. And then I tried to find the opposite of that position. So I'd have these fields of thought, uh, these different quadrants that would allow me to explore spectrums of ideas um, and orient myself within them, but really have a more... Uh, broad view on whatever the concept was, whether it was relationships or economics. And I think I would, the, the most fun when I had that is I would take on personas that represented personalities that would argue these positions and I'd give them voices and I'd give them names. And I'd say like, okay, this archetype represents this location in the spectrum of ideas. And then from there, I was building characters and world building and scripts. And it was just like a way of mapping ideas through relationships that expressed the real dynamism of the depth and breadth of how an idea could be explored. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, wow, this really just sounds like someone who has a lot of time to themselves. What's funny is that I'm not an only child. I have a brother and we grew up together. Um, but, you know, we did still develop our independent personalities, I think due in large part to the fact that when we were, I would say, you know, middle childhood before we got into junior high, uh, we used to share a room. And then we got to a point where we wanted our independence. So we pitched to, uh, my parents that our guest room would be my brother's room and I would keep the bunk beds. But it meant that when we didn't have guests in our guest room, he could have that as his own room, his own space. And that when we did have guests, he would sort of temporarily move back in for a few days into what was our room and we'd share the bunk bed. It meant that I think my brother couldn't decorate his room with all the posters and things that he wanted because we kind of wanted to leave it relatively neutral for guests. But I didn't really want to put posters up in my room anyway because we had really cool paint. Um, point is, we separated rooms and that moment was, a, in hindsight, a turning point when we got to be more independent and expressive. My brother was playing his own music and developed his own tastes, his own habits, his own ways of getting ready in the morning, picking out clothes. We didn't have to vie for space in the mirror. We only had to vie for time in the bathroom. But um, if he was getting his clothes picked out and I was brushing my teeth, we didn't even really have to vie for the bathroom. Point is, my brother uh, went from a roommate to a housemate. 
And when that happened, the amount of space that I had to explore ideas and explore my tastes and desires rapidly expanded. And I think that is where I started to get some of the only child energy <laughs> that as it pertains to like my creativity and my imaginary friends. The other thing that I think is fascinating is the idea of imaginary friends in the first place. That it's something that we have a really common vernacular for as it pertains to children. But then when we get older, those areas of our subconscious, we name in different ways as pathos or ego. Um, and I'm like, well, what if my ego, actually I have, I have a friend who, who names uh, the dark part of himself, right? Like the, the, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde, but you, you, know, you name it. And um, you know, I think it's like Winston or something. But this name, creating imaginary character, is also something you see in Mr. Rogers, right? Like there, if you watch the documentary, he's got um, Daniel Tiger, which represents a sliver of his psyche. Um, and then he's got, you know, um, the, the king of the make-believe land. And, and, and I think that they represent parts of his psyche, but they also represent voices in his head, figures. Like I think he had an aunt who was very similar to one of the, the, the queens. And, and so to me, I'm thinking about how I can continue to use imaginary friends to explore thinking and how I can continue to use imaginary friends to explore parts of my psychology. And, you know, I've done it. I think when you hear me use LM, I'm really bringing my inner child voice, this mischievous, sort of ambivalent to the ways of the conventional world um, figure to the forefront. And he's like, I don't, you know, break it down for me in simplest terms, partially because he has a juvenile understanding of the world in the first place, but also because, you know, he hasn't really adopted all the rules of society. So his tone is sometimes a little weird. The way he phrases questions might be overly simplistic, um, but it's an opportunity for me to explore ideation through the lens of childlike wonder and not having to uh, cow to respectability when it comes to someone else's authority in a particular domain. It allows me to hold an innocence and or an ignorance about a subject and really just go into it um, with the naivety that allows for more radical thought, I think, or just at least openness and curiosity. And so what that does is, to me, it <laughs> validates the fact that I'm talking to myself and my phone in the middle of a park, but it also helps me bring utility to it. And that when I say I'm talking to myself, I'm engaging with myself, I'm developing a healthier relationship with myself, I'm actually doing a better job of understanding that cartography, the spectrum of my thought, where my imagination goes to when I'm pushing myself to the limits of my creativity, also where my imagination goes to when I'm feeling defeated and or depressed. And this is really helpful for me to get to know myself from the standpoint of becoming a better friend to me. And I know in All About Love, Bill Hooks talks about, you know, learning to love yourself first. But I don't know if we necessarily have developed really strong frameworks to allow people 
to know themselves first. Sure, there's meditation. Sure, there's yoga. But if you think about the ways practically that we get to know ourselves, a lot of it's behavioral. A lot of it's not linguistic. Um, And so when we think about ourselves and our thoughts, there is definitely some work around listening to our thoughts. But I'm also like, am I the type of person who fall asleep on a train uh, and miss my stop? That's not really the kind of thing I would do. And I know that about myself. I'm pretty firm in that behavior, not being one. However sleepy I might be, it's just like, I guess my vigilance is going to keep me awake. And I'm not able to even land at a place where I could find, you know, a sufficient level of exhaustion that would allow me to fall asleep on a train. Actually, what's more likely to happen is I would be distracted uh, and zoned out and daydreaming on some idea and as a result of that I miss my stop that is something I would do but I know that about myself and um, there's a bunch of different tendencies that are behavioral habits that I can definitely explore seek to optimize measure and develop goals around but also at the same time I can practice loving myself I can ask myself questions like well yo what actually brings me absolute joy and richness in my world. And that, for example, one of those things is dance. And that's how I know I'm a dancer, whether I'm a professional dancer, I'm being hired to do it or doing commissions with museums or uh, just doing it in my kitchen, right? I know that one of the things that makes me feel most alive, that brings my life not only richness, but a a deep experience of presence is movement in my body in relationship to not only music, but just like the sounds that are happening around me. Ironically, at the moment, I'm just sitting in a chair and I think there's something too about being still, um, but not disengaged. While I'm not what you would say is uh, dancing or actively moving, I'm still deeply engaged in my body. I'm still like, wiggling my toes. I'm still aware of tightness in my shoulders. I'm feeling the breeze on my neck and like the fresh air sort of going into my ear canal. I know like what my tongue feels like in my mouth in relationship to, you know, like how much saliva is in there, whether I'm like my mouth is dry or it's time for me to drink some water. There's a bunch of stuff that's going on. I'm slightly hunched over because I'm leaning into my phone. And so periodically I swing back, but again, this is an opportunity for me to know and have a relationship to myself. Like, where is comfort? Where is stasis? Um, And then also, there is me and there is my body. So, you know, know, there's like the Cartesian duality. But I think of myself as a system, and that Cartesian duality isn't strict. I think when I'm dancing, it's unified. And when I'm observing my body, there is a detachment that allows me to observe. And then there, is our, there are also times when I'm sensing from within without actually cognition, and I'm just moving in response to, you know, um, I'm already on my way to the bathroom by the time I realize I need to go to the bathroom sort of thing. Um, and these are ways that I, I'm, like, really processing what it means to be a friend to myself. Sometimes it's, like, care and acts of care that help me to know that I'm a friend of myself. And then other times there are thoughts and conversations that I'm sort of willing to entertain or 
space that I'm willing to give certain facets. And so like this idea of having a persona or a facet of myself, a friend of mine that is a little bit down in the dumps kind of all the time, and like being able to understand the value of this friend, like a sort of a sort of Eeyore character that's a little mopey, but a little mopey in a way that helps me get in touch with my grief and in touch with my sadness that I can't ignore, that will pester me and bother me if I don't text them back, that will continue to remind me that we made plans and like seek to confirm and ensure that I make myself available. This character, this person is key in my psyche. This friend is key and you know another good example of this per uh, this kind of thing is a friend of mine is oscar the grouch right so i have an eeyore and i have an oscar the grouch this person who's kind of antisocial and really just wants to be left alone because of the complications and confusion that people bring in their life the expectations and the existential weight of being perceived oh my god just get the fuck away from me right like leave me alone and i'm i'm intentionally smelly i'm an intentionally ill-behaved person because i i actually want to push you away i don't want you to want to spend time around me and the fact that i'm not treating you all that well and the fact that i'm smelly and the fact that you keep coming around isn't about your altruism it's about your ego and desire to conquer my bad attitude for whatever you know, thing of superiority that you are manifesting in yourself, right? And so I have this grouchy character, this Oscar the Grouch character, you know? But I also have a Leonardo inside of me from Ninja Turtles who is this um, perennial optimist who is solution-oriented and is motivating and bubbly. And I think Donatello also, who is just incredibly re- industrious and resourceful. Um, and yeah, it's more Donatello than, than Leonardo. I think um, the, re- the resourcefulness and, and how resourcefulness can, can also lead to optimism because you have an understanding of the systems that are happening around you. There's another funny story from my childhood as it pertains to having my own room. Shortly after I got my own room, I started doing science experiments. I got a chemistry set. And I had this halogen lamp in my room. Um, And my chemistry set didn't come with a Bunsen burner, right? Because I was a kid. I was maybe 11 or something like that. Um, Definitely before junior high, so maybe fifth grade. And I said, okay, well, I know I need heat to make this uh, chemical reaction possible. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take the beaker and a little tong, and I'm gonna hold it over this halogen lamp because this halogen lamp is producing heat because the light bulb is producing heat, a lot of heat actually. And I can use this as my heat source to create this chemical reaction. So I'm holding the beaker with the small tong over the light. Of course, because it's producing heat, and it's producing heat faster than I was noticing, the beaker gets hot, the tongue gets hot, and of course my reflex is to let go. And so I then drop the beaker into (laughs) the lamp, and I figured, oh, this is a bad thing, but now there's liquid inside the lamp. Shortly thereafter, basically burst into flames. And so I go downstairs and tell my dad, hey, 
um, he's chilling on the couch watching TV, probably like a brief moment of respite from, you know, work and being a father. I interrupt it casually, calmly and say, you know, because I'm a scientist, right? Hey, dad, um, my room is on fire. And he looks at me sort of unsure if I know what I'm saying because of how calm I am. He's like, what? And I'm like, yo, dad, my room is on fire. My lamp is on fire. So we walk up the stairs and he sees it and he snatches the lamp cord out of the wall. He grabs the lamp, runs it downstairs and puts it out in our lawn. And one of the things to my family's credit, I wasn't punished or shamed for setting the room on fire. My dad asked me what happened and gave me an opportunity to explain how it came to be that my room was on fire, you know? Uh, and I think about this now in hindsight and I, and I think about um, how I developed an industrious, resourceful, optimistic personality is for moments like this. There, it didn't, he didn't always respond this way, you know what I mean? He's a human being and he's flawed. But in this particular moment, he had the wherewithal and the time and the patience, probably because just before that he was chilling, to interrogate the situation and me from a place of curiosity. He was like, yeah, so, so how did the room, you know, just, you know, you're not in trouble, but how did your room get up, get up on fire? I was like, well, you know, I was doing a science experiment in my room with my chemistry set, and, you know, I was trying to find a heat source, but I don't have a flame. And, you know, I, I was doing it in my laboratory and uh, I used the heat source, which was the lamp, and it got too hot and I dropped the beaker. And then by the time I went to get it out, it was too hot to retrieve it and I didn't have another tongue. And so it caught on fire. And that's sort of what happened. And he was like, I get it. I understand now. So, so how about let's not do any experiments with heat and, anymore, son. Or if you want to do experiments with heat, you have supervision or you do them in kitchen. Or, or if you want to learn how to use fire, let's like talk more about cooking. All these options were presented to me. And I, I think that when faced with a challenge, there is the Donatello in me. With faced, when faced with what could be perceived as a failure, I begin to interrogate and explore options. And in that way, I'm a friend to myself because that's what friends come to me for. They, when, they, when they come to me, they, they are able to present a challenge. And without shame, even without presenting a solution, I just, I want to ask questions and lay out possibility. And, and now if, if they come to me looking for advice, I'm probably not the best person because what I'm going to do is ask questions and lay out possibility. <laughs> I'm not going to give answers, really. Um, so know that. But the way I treat myself is also the way I treat my friends. And so when I think about attachment style and avoidance and codependence and all this kind of stuff, I think about, well, where am I expressing my behavioral tendencies with others in behavioral tendencies with myself? When am I inspired to more deeply engage? When am I inspired to withdraw? What kinds of interactions excite me, ignite me, energize me, what kind of interactions with myself drain me, you know, deflate me, 
and make me feel sort of existentially alone. And part of this is great because it means that I get to learn about the way that I interact with people by looking at, by noticing what's happening with my inner characters, with my imaginary friends, with my subconscious. Um, and so, you know, I, I have more than just Eeyore and Oscar and Donatello, right? There's a whole spectrum of you know, perspectives I can take and relationships that I have and can cultivate. Um, and so I'm excited about that, about this ability to never really feel alone, actually, in a positive way, that um, I definitely do feel boredom. And sometimes what I do with that boredom, it will occur to me as um, what, what I think most people would say is loneliness. But to me, loneliness is like an existential state. And I, I've never, I can, I, I'm, I'm glad to say that, I, that I've never felt existentially lonely. I've definitely felt separation and I've definitely felt isolation. But existentially lonely is not the thing that I felt. What I felt is boredom. And when I felt boredom, my recourse was either to reach out to someone, reach out to someone else, reach out to someone else. And by the third time I realized, well, people aren't available to me right now. I guess the universe is telling me something. The universe is telling me, hey, you need to sit with this boredom and figure it out. And so I would like, okay, well, what's an experiment I can run? What's a play I can do? What's a toy I can interact with? Or what's a tenant that I can cl climb and a spectrum I can build and a world that I can craft with myself so that I'm addressing this sensation of boredom, disengagement. And I, and I think personally, that's what, that's what boredom is and why boredom and loneliness feel so similar, at least in an existential way, is there's a disengagement, a disengagement from the connection you have with yourself, with your emotions and with your passions. And so this idea that friendship and intimacy um, starts with you, I think there's something to that. It doesn't always have to start and end with you. I think there's people who are able to stimulate a connection to our inner selves through the feedback they give us, through the, like having a crush, the excitement, or just meeting new, someone new and, and, and being excited by what awakens in you through your interactions. And so I think that there is a part of us that isn't wholly responsible for keeping ourselves entertained. Everyone doesn't have to have only child energy in order to make it in the world. I think it can certainly help to cultivate some of that, to get in touch with the inner personas and have imaginary friends, you know? Like, I'm advocating for this, right? Go and get you some imaginary friends. And this is the funniest thing about it, is that our connection with people is in part imagined, right? Like, we have an imagined um, identity of a person, a shape that they hold of who we think they are, and some of that isn't accurate. Some of that is our construct of them. So even the real friends that we have are in part imaginary. But developing an awareness around like the construct, the construction of identities and how we interact with them probably helps us to see the places in our life 
where this person is serving as our externalized Eeyore, our externalized Oscar the Grouch, our externalized Donatello from Ninja Turtles, right? Like this is uh, a, a, a construction, a very useful identity friend perspective to have in my life that rounds out, that gives me permission, that inspires me to think in different ways, that, that creates a space for me to express in this way that I don't um, immediately have access to. And I can cultivate that myself through my imagination, or I can cultivate that through my engagement with other people. But at the bottom line, it's through an engagement in the practice of naming and noting the, the identity constructs that we that we allow ourselves to create and, and being able to recognize that they're, they're partly fabricated. Oh man, I, uh, I've now stood up and I've walked probably about 100 meters from this chair that I was sitting in. I think what happened was I got a bit warm as the sun moved. And so now I'm standing in the shade and I'm pacing a little bit, but I'm also excited by my ideas. And as I got excited by my ideas, I stood up. I, I know this is an audio format, so I imagine that you can hear my voice and you're probably also wondering why I'm able to monologue for 25 minutes <laughs> on my own. And, uh, you know, I think this is another thing that I'm, I've been noticing on the podcast. It's like the friend show is twofold. Part of it is about exploring ideas and me wanting to have a platform for my own ideological exploration and using these relationships as a a uh, way to create that platform. I could also just have a podcast where I'm the only one that talk every episode, but I don't think it would push my thinking as far. I don't think it would be as stimulating and I think that I would eventually become bored. But the other thing that it does, it allows me to interrogate the way that I interact with people. So when I listen back to, to the podcast episodes, I get to hear what I've said in response to someone. I get to hear what kinds of statements again, draw me forward, and I get to hear what kind of statements I sort of say, okay, and then I move on from. Because everybody's editing conversations while they're having them. I just have the added uh, sort of luxury, benefit, privilege, or obligation of having to edit them for the second time uh, after I listen to them the first time. So I think that it, it it does that, and it also gives me an opportunity to practice friendship, to practice listening, to practice um, mapping out that, that landscape, and to practice finding um, myself in relationships. Um, and, 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 to f and, and when I say find myself in relationships, I don't mean to, to find myself through relationships, but I mean to create a space that is, that is collaborative, and orient myself within that. Like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm getting new information right now. I'm learning from someone. And I get to sit with that and I get to feel that. I'm sharing information right now and I get to feel that. I get to feel sort of uh, generous and empowered. I get to feel humbled and, and, and inspired. This is just, I think, turning into a bit of a check-in as we've gotten to... Um, I think what is now going to be the ninth episode, uh, tenth if you consider the welcome episode. But let's just say this is a mid-season check-in. And um, now you have a little bit more context around me if you don't know me at all. And if you think you know me, then 
this is where <laughs> you get when you hand me the mic and uh, no time limit. I'm not actually trying to make it to a hard 30. I think I could, though, if I really tried. I'm happy to share a little bit about it and um, name this imaginary friend thing because I think it's super exciting. Um, but I'm also starting to feel like I've drawn it on too long and so I don't want to spiral. So I'm going to end it here and thank you all for listening. Um, I, I say that this is a, probably a good time for me to say that if you've listened to more than one episode, like two full episodes, go ahead and leave a review. Um, and leave an objective review and maybe even a comment. If you've only listened to one episode, either in entirety or not entirety, just go ahead and give it a five star because you don't know enough to give a, a critique. <laughs> just go ahead and give it a five star and then like put a thumbs up emoji down there. Um, and in either case, um, consider if there's anyone in your life that you think might feel like this kind of stuff is interesting and go ahead and share a link with them, whether it's on any of the listening platforms or my Instagram or, or what have you. Go ahead and share that link because uh, I think the, the project becomes more interesting the more people get to hear about it and, 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 and scale is important in this, in this case. So um, thank you all and uh, I'll see you in the next episode with the next guest. This episode of The Friend Show was recorded live in Fort Greene Park in Brooklyn, New York City. The intro and outro music is from the artist named Deaf Sound, produced by Lightfoot, and is brought to you by copious amounts of Mountain Valley Spring Water. If you're interested in supporting The Friend Show, visit patreon.com slash Maceo Paisley. Thank you.